Hi, and welcome to the Productize Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productize Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Productize podcast. My name is Andre Marquis. I'm one of the co-founders of Productize. I'll be your host today. For the past few years, we've been doing a series of interviews with product innovators that have been able to beat the ceiling and become successful makers, entrepreneurs, agents of change. Our mission is to inspire, is to connect, is to empower more people to get into product roles. Um, and to you know, evolve in their careers. And our guest today is a friend, Dan Olson. Thank you for for being with us and for being so patient for like half an hour or so with the, all the tech tech checks that we've been through. So hi, Dan. Welcome and and thank you thank you um, for for making the time to to being with us. If you you know if you want to know more a little a little bit more about Dan Olson Dan Olson is a, is a product management trainer is a consultant is also an author um at Olson Solutions at his company he he works with CEOs and product leaders to build strong product teams his clients include Google Facebook Amazon Uber Box Walmart Dan is also the author of the bestseller, The Lean Product Playbook, which, by the way, I have an autographed copy. Thank you, Dan, uh, which I basically check almost every single day. And prior to consulting, Dan was also a product leader at Intuit and several startups. Dan today lives in Silicon Valley, where he founded the monthly Lean Product Meetup, which has over 10,000 members. So... What are you working right now? What is what is what is exciting for you these days? Well, before COVID, I was flying around the world every two weeks, giving private workshops, you know, at companies, uh, training mm-hmm. people on on the stuff from my book, um, the concepts and product management. Uh, with COVID, I've just been doing that online. So I'm mainly doing a bunch of private training workshops on product management. Sometimes it's just product teams. Sometimes it's cross functional teams where we have the developers and designers. So that's what I really enjoy doing the most. And um, I think as we all know, product management has just been exploding as a career in the last few years. You know, back in the early days of doing product management, it wasn't as well known. But now everybody wants to be a product manager. Um, everybody wants to build their skills as a product manager. So the demand for training, you know, like my workshops or the master class is just skyrocketing that I've seen. So it's a lot of fun to get to work with a lot of different companies and kind of see product management be evolving over time. Right. Which which countries are are do you see actually you know coming after ah. you? Do you have any specific geographies or? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, I think it's growing. Um, you know, it's all over. It's a lot in the U.S., but also uh, I um, Ireland. I you know actually before COVID, I one of my last trips was to Ireland, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think Europe in general is is taken off as well. You see a lot more. Um, I'm at my meetup, for example, we took it online as well. And I increasingly see a lot of attendees from like a lot of European countries, like Germany as well. Um, Australia and New Zealand, we see a lot of people there, you know, there, there's a product conference down there. So yeah, it just seems like, and Brazil, you know, Brazil as well. You just, so you see a global, it's nice to see that global, um, 
you know, evolution of product management and more and more people seeking that. You see more and more events, you know, each year I try to do a guide at the conferences and the, the geography of the events gets more and more diverse every year, which is awesome. That's true. That's true. Um, and, you know, I, I guess there's there's a reason why you, you started writing the, the Lean Product Playbook. Um, what, who should read it? They, do you think you know yeah. new people coming into product should still read the book? Well, who is what who is the book addressing today? Yeah, I mean, seen? basically, the book came out of my speaking, so I started speaking to product audiences, and this was before there was even product conferences, mm -hmm. there were just um, there were just tech conferences, basically, right? So, right. uh, the book came out of that, sharing best practices with people. Um, and uh, you know, the book is meant for anyone working in product management or developing products. In fact, there was recently an Amazon review that I really liked. It said, hey, if you're new to product management, it's great to kind of teach you the fundamentals. Um, and like, if you're already in product management, you want to up-level your skills, it's got a lot of good frameworks to do that. And I think it can also be helpful for people that even if you're not in PM, if you, a lot of developers and designers and entrepreneurs have said it's helpful for them to understand the concept. So it's meant to be a general purpose book. It's very, you know, it's right here. It's very comprehensive. It's thick. It's 335 pages. So it covers not only product management, but a little bit of UX design, a little bit of analytics. So yeah. um, a lot of people end up finding the sections that are most relevant for them and putting little sticky notes there and then going back to that and referring yeah, that's, it. So that's, that's, what I've, that's what I've done myself. Yeah, I love it when somebody's like, oh, here's a run out, see the book and I see it's got a bunch of sticky notes. I always take a picture or highlights and things like that. So, so it's cool. And then back to the international thing, it's been, um, it's been published in, um, in Chinese. Uh, hmm. Polish, actually, Poland is another country. They have a really strong product camp in Poland. Uh, it's in yep. Polish. It's in Turkish. So you're wow. seeing more out of Turkey um, as well. So uh, so it's kind of cool. Yeah. Congratulations. And, Thanks. you know, uh, the book has been around for five years or so. Um, you know, I think it's pretty much uh, still uh, updated. Uh, but in terms of prototyping tools, you've, you've seen the emergence of new ones. So while something's still going strong, but uh, Adobe XD, Figma, also in, in analytics, uh, Mixpanel was all the rage in 2016, 15. And, and yeah. now you have new players like Heap and Amplitude and Pendo. How does that change the landscape in your opinion? Does it yeah, provide it's been a substantial difference? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, that's the one thing. Whenever you write a book, you worry about, is it going to get what you write dated, right? And I think mm -hmm. the frameworks and advice is evergreen. Um, but I wanted to be as helpful as I could. So I listed the resources there. Now, most of the resources are still relevant. But as you said, there's new ones coming out, right? So right. Balsamic remains one of my favorite tools. Um, you know, it's going strong as far as a low fidelity prototyping tool. I encourage all PMs to get comfortable with that. You know, if you're lucky, you have a designer and you're, you know, you're good to go. Um, but a lot of times you don't have a designer or it can be good to just sketch out your thoughts. But the other exciting tools, I think the prototyping is an area and design tools, you know, Sketch was around back then. It's obviously come a long way. And uh, and basically, that's where you're seeing a lot of excitement. So like Adobe XD wasn't out when I wrote my book. Figma yeah. wasn't out, as we were saying. And so the ability to kind of easily create prototypes and basically interactive prototypes where, where the user can click or tap, right? Um, InVision is still going very strong as well. So it's really exciting the ability to kind of take your idea for a product, prototype it and test it with users to get rapid feedback has never been easier. Right. And as I say in my book and my talks, I'm a big fan of testing prototypes before you do any coding. 
Like why go and code something if you don't know it's what somebody wants? Like let's use a prototype and let's test it and iterate the prototype. And the, the case study I give in my book and that I'll be giving in my master class probably is uh, is an example of how we iterated quickly because we were doing it with prototypes basically, right? So that's exciting. And then I think equally exciting is the analytics space. So as we were saying back then, Google Analytics and Mixpanel were the main tools. And since then, we've seen the emergence of a whole new crop of tools, the new capabilities, Heap, Amplitude, and Pendo. So it's exciting that as a product manager, you have multiple choices for, for tools that you can use to help get insights on the analytics for help you improve your product, as well as the prototyping. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how do you see no code nowadays? Um, all the rage with no code, that's lots of new companies coming in with no yeah. code. So I, I, do you see, yeah. this is going to be a- It's the topic. same thing. Yeah, same thing on the tech side. It's never been easier. We can say it each year, you know, with AWS and no code and all these things, it's never been easier to go from idea to live product. Mm -hmm. right. It's never been less expensive and take less time and less work. So that's funny because when that part of it, you know, in the early, early days of tech, that was the hard part. That was the really hard part. As right. that gets easier, as standing up a web app just becomes relatively easy, you know, um, it's like, it's like, then what's the hard part? The hard part is actually solving customer needs and delivering something of value, you know? Absolutely. So it's more and more pressure on product management now to step up and make sure we're going to build the right thing. And that's exactly what you're going to do at the master classes. So thank you for, for kind of sure. taking you, uh, the, taking it to my next question, which is, um, you're going to give um, a masterclass at Broadatize Masterclasses on May 27, which is actually the first day. And you're going to talk about how to build the right thing for the right people. That's right. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, what this masterclass will be about? Yeah, I think we have 90 minutes total. So that's a good amount mm -hmm. of time, you know, uh, longer than just a short talk where, where one, I can share in depth the, the lean product process from my book. So in the book, The two key frameworks are the product market fit pyramid, which is a model for how to make sure you're achieving product market, how to make sure you're delivering customer value. And then the lean product process, which guides you through each of the steps through the lean, through the product market fit pyramid. So I'll basically be covering that process in the 90 minutes um, with some case studies and some, you know, class Q&A to make it interactive. You know, I always like to make sure the workshops are very interactive and we have real world case studies that people can try to like think what they would do, put themselves in the shoes of that company and, you know, apply the framework. So I like to teach a framework, share an example, and then do a quick class exercise to see if people can, you know, really, really understand it. Um, and then of course, we'll have time at the end for Q&A for everybody. So I'm excited. It's a lot of fun. And I think it will give people, you know, a good overview of the key, key advice from my book. And then, you know, the next, equip them basically like the next day, once they're done with the master classes to be able to start to apply those things right away. Yeah. So they, they are entitled to a book. So if they, they buy the tickets, they, they'll get the book. And, and having the, the masterclass as a, an entry point is a great way to actually, I guess, yeah, read the rest that's of what, the book. Yeah, that's basically the, the masterclass would be like a 90-minute movie version of the book that'll give you an overview. <laughs> so then you'll, uh, it's like, there's the movie version and there's the, there's the book version. So, yeah. yeah. So look, let's you know, get back a little bit and, and start and, and think about your um, career. Um, you, you actually started um, in the defense industry, designing uh, nuclear uh, submarines, the, the Virginia-class submarine, which happens to still be the United States Navy's uh, yeah. latest undersea water platform, uh, although it's yeah. you know almost 20 years old. But the, the development cycles can be 
very, very long, uh, you know, for, for business uh, and, and, you know, in this case, defense contractors. So what do you, what did you learn from that experience, which I guess is at the other side of the, the lean uh, methodology of doing fast and breaking things when you're designing yeah. a nuclear submarine that, yeah. you know, it's not supposed to be broken. very Yeah. Easily. You don't want to break things. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, um, and that's the funny thing is we all embrace agile and we want to be agile and do continuous deployment. And that's good in the software space. But as you said, like if you're building a submarine or a space shuttle or a rocket ship, you know, you don't want to be like, oh, the MVP one blew up. Let's go iterate the version 1.1. <laughs> so the stakes are a little higher. So, yeah. so it is a little more waterfall and, and just to quantify it, like from when you say, okay, our goal is to develop a submarine that has these high level parameters of speed and operating capabilities. It takes 12 years to go from there to design, to build and have it be in the water and tested and ready to operate. So 12 years um, cycle. And um, yeah, so I, I, I was working on that before I moved to Silicon Valley and, uh, and the, the submarine that I was working on didn't actually you know, start operating for several years later because I was working on the design phase, which was a lot of fun. And actually what I learned about, and I went from there, it was very interesting to go from a 12-year development cycle. I went to Intuit, you know, where I started my product management career, where I learned a lot. It's a great company working on a one-year product cycle, like a Quicken, you know, like, like it's like Microsoft Word or any of these other desktop apps that it's a one-year cycle. You have Quicken 99, Quicken 2000. And so I went from a 12-year dev cycle to a one-year dev cycle. And that was a great shift because... It was moving faster, but it wasn't so crazy fast. You still had time in each phase to be like, okay, now we're doing market research. Okay, now we're going to write product definition. Okay, now we're going to you know, spec out the MVP. Now we're going to do design. Now we're going to do user testing. So it was a great transition for me. And then, of course, from there, then I went to the web where it's like every two weeks or every week, the pace is really fast. The dev cycle is like a week long, right? So yeah. there's a whole span of one week versus... And the thing that I realized is um, two things. One is... The reason you can't move so fast is you're literally like welding steel together. Like what's the risk of a mistake? Back to what we're talking about. The riskier the mistake, like truly risky, and the less easy it is to make a change in the product, like in a submarine, you know, uh, the longer, the more kind of waterfall-ish it needs to be. The more it's like, ah, if we make a mistake, we can just fix it two minutes later, then you can afford to move much more faster and, and be riskier like that, right? So it's exciting. The other thing is having worked on those different types of products, it makes me take a step back and think about, well, how much time when you're working on a product in, in the dev cycle, if you allocate the time between like defining the product, right? Or, you know, designing and defining the product versus building the product versus testing the product. So in that 12 years of, of submarine, most of it, probably like eight years is design and definition, not even building it, right? So for most software products, building is the thing that takes the most time. It's the building that takes time and these days, you know, QA isn't as sexy as it used to be. So they don't even test that often sometimes. I mean, some people still do, right? So it's basically like all build, very little test, maybe some defined design and definition, depending on where you're working. And the submarine world, it's inverted. You're spending all this time on design and definition. So it actually was a good training for me in product management to like show how you can really spend a lot of time really defining and thinking about what the product can be and answering the, all the detailed questions, you know, to make sure you're kind of delivering value. It also was a very complex product. Right, and submarine is one of the most complex kind of products around, mm -hmm. and I think that that that's good to build muscles of like, what does it mean? How how do you work on a complex product? Because then you need a team, you need multiple teams to do that, and you've got to coordinate. 
And, you know, obviously for PMs, cross-functional collaboration is really important. And we often have a matrix organization where we're dividing and people are in different teams and groups that have to work together. Well, I was very fortunate at that place where I worked, it was a matrix organization. It was probably the most efficient, effectively working organization that I've ever worked in. And I've seen a lot of places, the matrix doesn't work too well. People aren't mm-hmm. sure how, who's where and what the roles are. That was like a rock solid one. So I learned early on like the power of working in an effective matrix organization and how to collaborate across functions. So those are some good lessons learned that when I got into product management, like, oh, I kind of already know how to do these things. Hmm. Um, and in hindsight, it was really just a very technical product management job that I had, even though I was working in submarine. So, so it was a great experience. Yeah, and I, you know, people like Steve Blank nowadays talking about how the defense contractors and, and, and the Pentagon should, you know, go into a more agile philosophy as well to ship faster. Mm-hmm. Um, also, because you have, uh, you know, new countries like like China and, and even Russia coming in with with lots of new technology to the battlefield very very fast. So, um, you know, uh, Marty Kagan he recently published uh, an article titled "The Great and the Rest," um, mm-hmm. and and coming from your your pedigree, which is great, companies like Intuit, and you've been through lots of great companies and, and not just in Silicon Valley, but also in Silicon Valley. How does product management in large firms like those, you know, the Googles, the Apples, differ from product management in other environments? And should the philosophy be the same? Yeah, that's one of the advantages of being a consultant and trainer. You know, I've been mm. doing this for for uh, over 15 years now. So you get to see a lot of different companies. And I've worked with both the big companies like Google, right, Facebook, Uber, um, Amazon, Walmart, and I've also worked with a lot of uh, startups, right? So post Series A startups. And early in my career, I would basically be like an interim VP of product for those startups. So like Box, um, Medallia, things like that. So I've seen all those different situations. I would say the reality is most of it is similar, right? Most of, I mean, at the end of the day. You need to understand who your customers are, no matter what size company you're in. Uh, you need yeah. to like, you know, make sure you're solving the right problems. You need to prioritize the opportunities. You need to like work with design on designs. You need to work with dev on development. You know, you need to work with marketing. Um, and and so that's pretty similar. I think that the big difference that tends to be the case, kind of just generalizing, is uh, in bigger companies often, but not always, you tend to have more resources, right? So as I like to say, it takes a village back to the matrix and the cross-functional organization to mm-hmm. develop develop a great product. It takes a strong PM, it takes a, a strong visual designer, a strong interaction designer, a strong front-end engineer, a strong back-end developer, right? QA, DevOps, marketing, all these other teams, right? And so typically in larger companies, but not always, those tend to be staffed more so than in a startup. In a startup, you might yeah. be in a startup and a PM and a developer and there's no designer right? Or there's no QA. So usually what that happens with the PM then is you need to have a broader role. You need to stretch out and fill the gaps. Like I like to say, a good good PMs fill the gaps on their teams. So there's probably going to be more gaps to fill and your job is going to be broader, which means you may not be able to go as deep in certain areas, but like, like wireframe, back to balsamic. If you're in a, you know, the number of PMs in an early stage startup where there's no designer who use balsamic to fill that gap, is is huge right so that's an example whereas if you're at a big company they might mm-hmm. have a well-staffed design team and so you as a pm it doesn't there's people who can do the wireframes and the mock-ups that are better at it than you are let them do it right so that's one thing is 
tends to be, but not always more better resource. So these things are staffed so you can do less and go deeper. Now, the flip side is you also tend to, in a startup, have more autonomy, a degree of control. Because it's a smaller organization, there are usually fewer people you need to get buy-in with. You know, you can kind of, you know, make decisions usually with less need to go around and check with everybody. There's less dependencies on other parts of the org and the team. That, that's often the case. Um, but again, there can be times in big companies when you've got an autonomous team um, and you're able to kind of do things on your own more or not have to get so much buy-in. Whereas if you're in a big complex product, say it's got like 20 scrum teams that are all working on this product, there's going to be a lot more cross-team communication and collaboration that's going to be required for your job, basically, right? Right. Um, And then the other thing in the startup, last thing I would say is, you know, you may be, you may have an opportunity to actually drive some of the foundational things. Like maybe your startup's not using analytics yet. So maybe you're the one to say, hey, guys, I think we should install Heap and get that going. In fact, one of my clients right now, that's what they're doing. Whereas mm-hmm. at a big company, those other things are probably all in place. Oh, we already have our user research platform. We already have our analytics platform. So I think that's an exciting thing, too, about being a startup is you can kind of uh, increase the foundational elements of what you're going to be doing for your job. Absolutely. So for, for people that want to get into product nowadays, product management, what kind of mm-hmm. tips are you usually giving them? And I, I guess lots of people come to you and say, hey, Dan, I, I just want to get into product or I work they in do. a company without the product management role. How can I get yeah. to be a product management in this company? So how do you have any any tips for those, those Yeah, questions? I do. And I do get asked that a lot. I should just write up one long blog post about it and then I can just point people to it. But, uh, but yeah, basically like, First off, if you're trying to break in, the first question I get is, how can I break in? The easiest way to break in is for your company to take a chance on you, right? For some reason, I mean, companies perceive it as less of a risk. If, if Andre is working in you know, development or customer success or something, and he's like, hey, I really want to get in the PM, that's a lot easier than trying to convince some company who doesn't know you, you never worked at, hey, I should be a PM. The challenge with, with PM is like, you want to get a PM job but they only want to hire people that have PM experience. It's like this catch-22. How do you ever break through that cycle to get the PM experience? So um, as far as building your skills go, I think you know conferences like Productize, webinars like this, my meetup, there are events where you can learn a lot from thought leaders and also from other people that you can network with. Um, there's obviously books like my book, The Lean Product Playbook. There's other good books out there. There's a lot of videos on YouTube. There's podcasts. I know Productize has a podcast too. So that's kind of the foundational thing. Um, but at some point, you need to actually kind of do it, right? And one of the biggest pieces of advice I have, if you're trying to break in, is like, just get your own website going. Like, get a basic website. We just talked about how it's so easy these days. Like you got WordPress, you got Squarespace, right? It's kind of funny. I'll interview someone who wants to be a web product manager, and I've got like, you know, 50 resumes. And I'll be like, oh, do you have a website? It's like, no. It's like, okay, let me get this right. You want to be a web product manager? And you haven't taken the time to create your own website yet, right? Well, right, guess what? Yeah. These other 10 people have. So it's not like it's crucial, but it's just a way to demonstrate. What you want to do is find ways to demonstrate your product management knowledge and passion short of not having that job title, right? So like get a website up, start like, you know, reviewing products. Like, hey, here's mm-hmm. my review of the new Instagram that just came out, right? You can write in that, that way, even though you're not in a product management role, you can point to those things when someone's interviewing you and they can see it on how you're thinking. Because the first thing I do if you're interviewing, like I help my clients review all the time, I Google your name. And if you have a website, it's going to come up. And then I'm going to be able to see your thinking, right? If you have sample wireframes or anything like that, you right. know, you can redact it, obviously. 
right? So that's just a way to show. And then back to inside the company, if they're not letting you, if they, if they won't give you the role just yet, you can basically like kind of like offer to help out the product management team, right? Mm-hmm. Product managers, as we all know, they're super busy. So if you're like some someone in the company who's really interested and said, hey, Andre, what can I take off your plate? How can I help you? I'm excited about yeah. product management. You're going to be like, hey, great. Here's a report you can run. Here's some yeah. analytics. Go talk to these customers. You know, go do this competitive analysis. There's a exactly. million little projects. So that's a way to kind of sneak your way over and kind of hang out and trying to kind of get in there. And then when a product world does open, they'll be like, oh, Andre's been helping us out. He's been doing a good job. Let's give him a shot, right? Absolutely. So you're actually the founder of the Lean product and the Lean UX meetup in Silicon Valley. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about that? How was the transition with COVID? No, yeah. not doing events in person. And how is yeah. that going now? It's going great. So I actually started seven years ago this month. I started it in oh, wow. 2014 when I was working at Medallia. So Medallia was my client. Um, and we were recruiting product. I was helping them grow their product team. And we wanted to kind of, I always wanted to create an event. I'm a big fan of building community and sharing best practices. And they had a wonderful auditorium. And so we partnered up and um, each month I host a top speaker. And we just recently crossed 10,000 members, which is, which is awesome. And we're one of the biggest product communities online. Um, and then, as you said, with COVID, I remember it was a year ago, March was the first time I had to take yeah, it online. I'm like, what am I going to do? I take it online. Yeah. You know that. We and have that date on the wall here. <laughs> I know. Everybody, now it's the one year anniversary. Everyone's like, oh, it's been a year. So it actually has been amazing. Like, I really do think a lot of times when there's a challenge, there's also opportunities. And so, like, the very, like, within an hour or two of posting our first online event, I started getting all these tweets and messages on LinkedIn saying, oh, this is awesome because I've always wanted to go, but I couldn't make it to Silicon Valley. And it just, you know, the reach is huge now. Instead of having to physically be within, you know, 30 miles of where we hosted in Mountain View, now anybody online can do it, right? And in fact, we get a lot of people from Australia and New Zealand because the time zone works out really well for them. Mm -hmm. We get people on the East Coast. We even get people from Europe that stay up late to do it. So it's been awesome. And then the other thing is a couple of things. Now my speakers don't have to physically be here either. So now I can like get the world's best speakers and not have to be like, well, when are you going to be in town and things like that? So that's awesome. And then finally, um, we have no physical constraints. You know, our room used to only be able to hold 180 people, right? Mm-hmm. Well, for our, our, we had a big event in December. Marty Kagan's a friend of mine. He's spoken at the meetup several times. His new book, Empowered, was coming out. So we did a launch event with Lean Product Meetup we had over 500 people. They would never even physically fit in the room. So, and even our event tonight, we have an event speaking of Europe with Alberto Savoia um, okay. from Google who wrote yeah. the book, The Right One of the books that you are going to recommend us. Yeah, it's right here, The Right It. So the anyway, right you it. can, yeah. So he's, uh, so again, it's uh, it's great that we can have speakers from all over. So it's been a, it's been a win-win. And then I think a lot of startup, a lot of meetups and other events struggled and have like basically been canceled. So people are seeking you know, while we're all stuck at home, we're seeking more educational opportunities, more networking opportunities. And luckily, Lean Product Meetup has been there to, to fill those needs. So, so it's been a lot of fun. Yes. And hopefully the masterclasses will be an opportunity for that as well. So exactly. we're going to open um, the mic to anyone that wants to just jump in, turn on, turn on, come on, guys, turn on your cameras. We have, we have Dan in the room, just unmute yourself and uh, feel free to to join the conversation and ask Dan what you want to ask him. 
All right. So we have someone here, Sandra. Uh, hi. Thank you very much. Hi, the... Sandra. Welcome. Hi, Dan. Uh, hi. I, uh, I would like to ask you um, regarding your experience. Uh, that uh, I think it has been uh, in the the web companies, right? Related with the uh, web design and things like that. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how can we use uh, this kind of experience or this kind of skills and tools of product management in order to um, design great customer service experience? <laughs> I work in the customer service. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, but in the digital, in the digital part of it. So yeah. I, I'm I'm very interested uh, in two things. First, the, the the best tools and frameworks to do it. And the second mm -hmm. one, it's about um, how the governance and uh, the teams, uh, the, the organization itself, how can we be the, or how can we have the best organization in order to get the, the right products to the right people, as you said. Oh, great question, great question. Where are you calling from, Sandra? Sorry? Where are you calling from? Uh, I'm from Portugal. I'm, All right, good. Which company? What kind? What uh, kind of company I, do you work at? I'm uh, I'm working in a telco. Office. Okay, got it. Yeah, good. Yeah, so you know, obviously, the interesting thing is a lot of time in product management we focus on the product, but the customer that's not the only thing they experience, right? If they have a problem, they're going to call customer support, customer service. So that ends up becoming part of the total customer experience, and it's a very important part. Like a lot of people use Net Promoter Score to to see how they're doing. And like the product could be doing really well, but if they call in a support have bad experience, you're going to get a low net promoter score. So, so it's part of what we call the complete product offering. It's a very important part. And you can use all the same techniques, right? Um, and in fact, customer success or service or support, they tend to talk to customers way more than anybody else in the organization on a daily basis. So there's a lot of great insights that can bubble up from there, right? Um, but you can use the same kind of techniques to identify what are the top problems that we see customers having, right? Um, and it, there it can be, it's pretty easy to use based on frequency, right? If in the last month, you know, a uh, hundred people complained about this topic, so there's a little bit of kind of tagging of the issues to in order to do that analysis, but usually it's pretty obvious the top issues. And so you can kind of um, analyze that and then apply the techniques that we talked about to prioritize which opportunities are the biggest, and then, you know, so there's a feedback loop directly to the product, but then even within customer success or customer service, there's a feedback loop of how can we do better, you know, what we're doing. And I think some of the key metrics that get used, um, obviously you can have a, a satisfaction number at the end of each call, right? Where it's like, hey, if you want to do a survey afterwards, that's kind of the, the satisfaction with the service. There's also like average wait time. How long are people waiting, right? Average service time. So there are some kind of well-known metrics in that in that area that you can follow. Um, and I think one of the other things that can be very powerful is what, if it's digital, as we're talking about, is the information is readily available. So you can like make like a dashboard of what are the real-time top issues that we're seeing that everybody can see. That's the power of that, right? You can crowdsource what's going on in real time. So for, say, for example, 
the tech team pushes some new release and all of a sudden you start seeing issues with a certain part of the product. Well, and it turns out that they kind of inadvertently broke something. You're like the early warning system with that live real-time dashboard is a way you could feed back to those people. So, so I think there's a lot of opportunities and it's a very valuable part of the total customer experience. Did you use uh, techniques like design thinking or, or something yeah. like that or service design? Or just yeah, looking and, yeah. To, to dashboards and numbers and something like that. Well, no, I think, and that's the thing is, um, that's the thing is, is if you and I, it's not, if you if you read my book, there's a lot of commonality between the lean product process and design thinking and service design, and in general, just customer centric product development. There's a lot of commonality in a lot of the principles that are out there, and so there are some frameworks that I like to use. One is importance versus satisfaction. So. The, the quick hand, easy way to do it is just frequency of number of customers complaining. What percentage of customers are complaining is the quick and easy way to do it. But beyond that, there's, and it's not all quantitative, it's qualitative. You certainly could interview, you could use the same customer discovery techniques that we use for product to use for your service design, where you go out and you talk to people and say, hey, you know, can I talk to you about your last customer service experience? Like, what did you like? What didn't you like? How could it be better? Those kind of things. How does our customer service compare to other customer service experiences you've had? So that qualitative discovery that just like you would do on a product is just as relevant and valuable for your customer service experience. Okay. Thank you. So, so Sandra, yeah. are, you are you working in consumer product or are you working in uh, no, business no. products? Uh, uh, neither one. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, I'm responsible for the digital care area. So I... I I work with digital products, but more like uh, the, um, the channels that the customers can use. And I, I'm very interested in how we can use the same frameworks of product management in designing a, a client area, for instance. Okay, I, I believe they are the the, the um, they have um, a lot of similarities because uh, in the final. Uh, it's uh, also a product for a customer. It's a service for a customer. So, uh, my interest in this in this workshop was about it. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm not designing <laughs> neither consumer nor B two B. All right. So, uh, do we have any any other questions? Thank, thank you, Sandra. We have. I think we have other people. Uh, Andrea also raising his hand. Andrea, feel free to jump in. Thanks, Andre. Uh, so another Andre here, Dan. Uh, really nice to hear you. Um, uh, my name is Andre. I'm based in Lisbon, um, PM here. So I have a question a bit, uh, it's a bit different. It's about, uh, you mentioned that the way to get into product is kind of falling into the role. Um, also believe it's, it's the best way. But uh, I honestly believe Europe as a region is kind of lagging in comparison to the US, maybe even Asia in terms of product uh, discipline, product culture, um, honestly, I feel like European tech companies take way longer to bring their first PMs into the process uh, and into the company. So, and you've been working with a lot of companies in the US. So my question to you is how do we change the mindset of CEOs, of management, the founders uh, on the importance of PMs and, and how yeah. do we convince them to kind of give this opportunity to get more people to falling into the role earlier on and not just when... There's already chaos, everything's burning, and we're kind of putting out fires and yeah. we're kind of shuffling paper. Yeah, the firefighter PM. Yeah. No, that's a great, great question, Andre. Nice to meet you. Um, and it's an interesting thing to be like, 
there's an evolutionary path of product management and how does it vary by geography, right? And, um, and I, you know, I came out here to go to business school and that's where I discovered it, it was a, a career choice. And I asked people, hey, where's the best concern? And, and people told me into it. So I was fortunate to go there where that's probably the, the one tech company that was at the forefront years before a lot of other people. Yahoo was another one. They called them producers instead of product managers, right? Microsoft was another one where they call them program managers, but same thing. So those are some of the early companies. And I do think you know, Silicon Valley is ahead. Other people are catching up. The rest of the US, there's other pockets and there's different regions. So um, the general transformation that I see, so I think the path is the same, just question of how long is it taking? You know, what I like to quote is, you know, Mark Andreessen a while ago said, software is eating the world. And we've all seen software eating the world. And I think what's happening is people realizing, well, if you want to have good software, you need product managers. But it's taking different companies a different amount of time to realize that. So um, when it, and I get in, I get involved with a lot of companies and clients that want to do change management and digital transformation and become more lean and agile. So I see this a lot. And I think uh, your question was, how do we kind of convince CEOs? I think there's a couple of things. And, and unfortunately, one is like um, fear is one. So like if you're at a big company and you've tried to do a few big tech initiatives and they failed, like a lot of times that's when I get called in. People are like, hey, we've tried doing this product twice and it's just not working out. What's going on? So that failure, right? And and as we all know, like big successful companies, sometimes they hide the failure. They sweep it under the rug. Hey, they kind of explain it away. But if they're honest about their failures, right? And it doesn't have to be a big failure. Be like, hey, we were expecting to earn 10 million on this product. And we only earned 1 million. Well, that means it didn't meet its objective. So I think as more and more CEOs and product and leaders realize, hey, why did we, why did that happen? They'll realize one of the root causes is a lack of strong, lack of product management or a lack of enough or strong enough product management. So I think that's one. The other, and, and the other fear factor is, is a little bit of a David and Goliath thing going on where there are a lot of startups coming up. And those startups, you know, a lot of them fail, but many of them are very agile, very nimble, very customer centric. Their velocity is so fast. It makes me think of like, uh, like a big, slow moving merchant ship versus like this little, you know, skiff that's going around, right? Um, they can really, you know, and so then increasingly some of these older, more established companies are seeing competitive threats from these faster moving startups that do understand product management. They do understand agile. You know, they're launching product. You can just see the pace with which they're launching their product. And so sometimes that will realize, help leaders realize, wow, there's a big difference between how we're operating and how they're operating. So those are some of the kind of, you know, external fear motivations. It can also just be someone who wants to, um, who realizes there's a better way. So part of it is getting new blood, right? If everyone's been in the company for 20 years, and they've never seen anything or worked anywhere else, that's not necessarily likely to change. But if you get in a new product leader, a new head of engineering, a new head of marketing, and they've worked in a company where they've had strong product management and seen how it can be and what the advantages are, that can help, you know, that can help turn things as well, right? Um, so it's tough. It's just kind of like, what's the general atmosphere, um, people realizing it. And I think the term that a lot of people at the CEO level use, they will use the term digital transformation a lot, right? That's kind of the buzzword of like, especially if they're a pre-internet company that's now trying to like embrace digital, they, they know that like the environment has changed and they're going to die unless they you know, go out of business, unless they adapt. And so usually it's under an umbrella of digital transformation that they'll embrace agile and start to say, wow, are we investing enough in product management? 
The other is design. You know, usually what happens, design, usually when a company's doing digital transformation, they'll start hiring up the product managers. And then design will be about like six to 12 months behind that, where it's like, okay, we've got five PMs now, but they only got one designer. Yeah, and they're realizing- yeah, actually, we, we, have, we have here Isabel and she's a designer herself. So yeah. Isabel, do you want to jump into the conversation right now since we're speaking about design? Sure, I, I can advocate the, the use and the value that that brings to, to validate and unblock a lot of situations because we can sometimes be in eternal loops of discussion. And if we materialize and bring the things into something visual that you can easily validate if this works or if it doesn't, it's one of the big values that design brings to the, the product uh, value <laughs> and good experience of users, right? Yeah, that's and exactly think, in my books and talks. I talk about problem space versus solution space. Exactly. And then once we get clear on the problems and we prioritize them, then it's like, what should the solution be? And that's where exactly like you said, Isabel, designers can help us explore what's possible. What could we do? Right. Um, and, it, and, and then create prototypes so we can test one, create design artifacts so that we internally can get aligned. Because if we're just talking with words, oh, we should build it this way, we should build it that way, it should do this, it should do that what everybody's thinking is different. The second you have a tangible artifact, like you're saying, everybody can kind of say, oh, that's what you meant by a, by an app that does X, Y, Z. Oh, I, get, I wasn't thinking that. So it helps get internal alignment and then you can turn around and use it with customers to validate it before you do any of the actual building and coding. Um, thank you, Dan, for being here. It's such a great opportunity to hear you and uh, ask you one-to-one uh, -one questions. So my, my first question is about to break into the product space. Uh, yeah. As Andrea Albuquerque was saying, uh, Europe is uh, far behind the United States. Uh, the corporations are still adopting and embracing Agile and they are uh, uh, giving the step to, to Scrum. So you have product owner. Uh, uh, most of companies don't have a product manager. And, uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I see a lot of companies, the product owner is the product manager. How, yeah. how can, can you clarify that uh, to us and uh, to our audience? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So if you just Google product manager versus product owner, you'll find like hundreds of articles on this topic, right? So it's one of the most um, common things that comes up, right? So um, in Agile, there's a role called product owner and it has certain responsibilities largely related to kind of, you know, the mechanics of the scrum, right? Prioritizing the backlog. Yeah, working with the dev team to make sure the story points are there, making sure the user stories are like writing the user stories, which is really important. And so um, in some companies, they have both POs and PMs. Some companies only have POs, some companies only have PMs, right? So it's interesting. I think most people fall down on the camp that the product owner role is like a subset of the fuller product management role. And like they're both important that the, the tasks that they do, the tasks that are PM that aren't fall under PO are very important, right? Usually the POs tend to be more focused on working with the developers and scrum teams and the designers on deliverables and less just the way it goes down, they get drawn into that part of the organization. And oftentimes they'll report to engineering. That's how you know, if, they're, if they report to engineering, then you know they're kind of more drawn to that part of the world and they might be less customer facing. Like they're obviously customer facing POs out there. And in some cases, regardless of the title, they're acting like full PMs. But just I'm talking about when you really get down to the details of what is it, what is it, right? 
So the PMs, what would they do that POs might not do? They will probably be doing much more market research, competitive analysis, higher level product strategy, higher level product road mapping, right? Less about the scrum, week to week scrum. And both are important. You need So they ended up being more tactical. The PO job tended to be more tactical. And the PM job in an ideal world is more strategic. Although everybody gets pulled into tactics because everybody's got short-term goals to launch this day, this week, right? So those are some of the things that, that I see um, the difference as. And so on the one hand, it's great that they've got product owners versus not having product owners. That's better. But hopefully over time, they can grow that role um, or add uh, add additional roles to help complement that. You know, Sometimes if you don't have those roles, either nobody's doing it or it kind of falls on the business side to do it. There's like some business partner and, and that can work to a certain extent, but oftentimes that business partner, while they're savvy in the business side of things, and they may be well-versed with the market and the competitors and sales, they may not be have the product management skills of kind of customer discovery, of contextual inquiry, of prioritization, of specifying MVPs and prioritizing features and building roadmaps and working with engineering. So, you know, again, it takes a village. So having that business voice is important, but you can have a gap in those some of those key product management areas if you only have a business person and a PO that's acting as a kind of a, a strict PO. Does that help? Right. Oh, yeah. So Paul, you have your answer. I hope your your company uh, does evolve towards a PM centricity company as well. So um, guys, this is the last round of questions. So if anyone has any uh, final questions. Just one last question. Uh, I'm okay. sorry, then I have to to take advantage of this opportunity. <laughs> yeah, do it. Uh, so oh, you, you, you talk about <laughs> so you, you talk about the how fast the startups are. Most of them fail, uh, and uh, um, I'm uh, myself uh, or uh, a co-founder of two startups. And uh, how, how do what's your take about merging uh, uh, startups into the corporate world? Uh, what do you think is, is the best interface to take advantage of the money? The potential, uh, all the business, uh, or and and uh, met business needs that uh, the corporate can can give and start up, you know, a way of doing things very fast uh, with anger, you know, to do uh, things uh, um, in a week, one week, two weeks, and iterate. What's uh, uh, you know your um, your take on that? What is the best interface that, that you uh, you've seen? So you're talking about when a corporation acquires a startup? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, I, I'm talking more about uh, like uh, opening innovation, uh, like uh, bringing oh. startups in there to okay. uh, push the product, yeah. inspire the, the, the workers, uh, um, uh, put some some technology or some product in, into testing to solve uh, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. specific problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think open innovation model has better chances, you know, so, so if we just talk about corporate innovation, like big company innovation, one model is they say, okay, we're going to, we're not innovating, so we're going to create an innovation center, <laughs> right? That's like the first thing that, that's one model that they do is we create it in, internally. And that has some issues where you're not necessarily getting the external thinking and things like that, right? The other is people acquire and they just say, all right, let's acquire the startup. A lot of times there, sometimes it goes well, but a lot of times there's trouble merging the two and the cultures are different and everything's kind of different and you kind of lose the special sauce that that, that startup had. So another model, the one you're bringing up, open innovation. I think that you don't see that as much, 
and it's in certain spaces and industries. But when you do see it, it can be interesting. So what that means is the big company, um, rather than trying to do it completely internally, is kind of opening its doors a bit, saying, hey, we're going to welcome you know, companies to come in. And that could be you know, um, some partnership programs or licensing programs or strategic fundraising or strategic investments, right? That's a good way that I've seen it work um, where the, the company will create an innovation fund specifically with the idea of going out there. And so then it becomes, feels more like an incubator accelerator and you start to build an ecosystem of different startups that are trying to work in the same space and leverage the technology. And there's much more free sharing and discussion of information and transferring of technology and best practices that happens, right? So I have seen that be a successful model. Um, and, uh, and so it ends up being a little bit more like VC or accelerator incubator at that point and less like, you know, corporate innovation or acquisition. Um, and I think that's exciting.